This is Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I want to thank you for coming back for a new episode. The podcast is growing. We're getting significantly more listeners each week. And I think part of the appeal is that I'm not here for money. I'm not here for clicks. I'm not here to become famous. I'm here for one reason. This information has to get out. It's not getting out from typical, you know, normal channels. It's not coming out unless somebody actually says something that's politically incorrect. It just won't come out on the radio, won't come out on TV. People are too terrified to lose their jobs. This isn't my job. This is a hobby. I'm going to say whatever the hell it is I want. Now, on this episode, like every other day of the year, racism and allegations of racism are on the front page, and we become a country where all we do is talk about racism, so why not talk about racism on this episode as well. And we're going to start it off with Brian Flores, who's the former Dolphins coach who got fired and then sued everybody. He was a really good coach for the Dolphins. Frankly, I thought that the Giants might hire him and I thought it would be a good hire. I was surprised that the Dolphins fired him. He had turned around the team to some degree, but he didn't make the playoffs this year and he probably should have. I thought it was a quick hook, but nevertheless, the owner fired him. Now, he's claiming in a class action lawsuit that NFL owners have conducted sham head coaching interviews with him um, in the past with the, the Denver Broncos and recently with the Giants, and they had no intention of hiring him in violation of the Rooney Rule. Now, for people that are unaware of what the Rooney Rule is, it was implemented by the NFL to force team owners when filling a head coaching position to interview at least two minority candidates from outside the organization. Because they want more diversity. I mean, that's, I mean, how do we live without diversity? We can't possibly live unless there's more diversity. Now, Flores' claim for proof that he had received sham interviews was based on a text that he had received from Bill Belichick, the coach of the Patriots. He had sent him a text congratulating him for getting the Giants' head coaching job. Just one problem. He didn't get the job. So, apparently, according to Flores, Belichick made a mistake and congratulated a wrong Brian, a different Brian, thought that he was speaking to a different Brian, who ended up getting the Giants job. So this is the proof, because apparently Flores is claiming that Belichick must have known in advance that the white guy was getting the job ahead of him, even though Belichick has nothing to do with the Giants organization. He's the head coach of the Patriots. And Flores also claimed that when the Denver Broncos interviewed him a few years ago for their head coaching job, uh, that they showed up an hour late, that they were rumpled, and in his mind, they were drunk. So first of all, they showed up an hour late because they had to fly all night to see him early in the morning. It was during the playoffs when the Patriots, and that was the team that Flores was on at the time, were practicing that day. So they had to come early, and they had to fly at night. And John Elway looking drunk, what does he care if John Elway was drunk? Uh, he's a, a former professional football quarterback. What else they do besides get drunk and play golf? So it shouldn't have been too much of a surprise. And regardless, the fact that he was wearing a rumpled suit, uh, who cares? I mean, he was flying on a plane. You're allowed to have a rumpled suit and interview people for jobs. And, and, and what is Brian Flores like mismannered or something where he's very concerned about clothing, uh, that have, has creases in it. It's crazy. Like, he's misfucking manners. I mean, uh, he, he claims that he was forced to go to a interview 
with the Giants during dinner, even though he knew from the Belichick text that he wasn't getting the job. Well, why did you go to dinner then? I can guess. He's sitting there at dinner at some steak restaurant, because you know it's a steak restaurant, because that's what football teams do when they take people to dinner. And I guess he was sitting there with his pinky out when he was drinking uh, his mint julep, because he's so concerned about how people look and how they act. In reality, I have no doubt that he shoved the giant uh, napkin down the front of his shirt while he was eating the six steaks and seven lobsters that all football players eat. I have no doubt that he was rubbing his hands together right before he started eating, and he was licking his fingers after every bite. Yeah, I'm sure it was really just a brutal, awful experience having to eat that $600 dinner that he ate. Jesus Christ, don't be around Brian Flores if you've got a wrinkle in your suit. Anyway, that's his claims on racism, and frankly, they're ridiculously weak. His claim, however, that he was offered $100,000 by Dolphins ownership to throw games, if he can prove that, the Dolphins are going to be in a world of trouble. That is no minor accusation. But let's make it clear. The request to throw, throw football games was not the reason why he was fired. He got fired because he had a losing record when the Dolphins should have been more competitive, and he couldn't get them into the playoffs. He failed. And sad as it may be, even though the NFL has a Rooney rule to help minorities, at some point in life, you have to produce. Because affirmative action doesn't just give minority coaches two to three extra wins each season. It may help them get the job, but it doesn't give them guaranteed success. You've actually got to produce. I know that's, it's awful. It's awful to suggest such a thing. Now, I looked around, did some research. There are six minority owners in all of major pro sports. Michael Jordan owns the Charlotte Hornets in the NBA. A Korean-born woman co-owns the Buffalo Bills with her husband. A Pakistani-born uh, man owns the Jacksonville Jaguars. An Indian-born businessman owns the Sacramento Kings in the NBA. A Marrakesh billionaire owns the Milwaukee Bucks. A Mexican, Artie Moreno, owns the Anaheim Angels. But check this out. Out of all these minority owners, only one even has a black or minority coach, the Sacramento Kings. And he's just an interim coach. He was named only after the uh, original coach, Luke Walton, was fired. So I guess these coaches, excuse me, these owners are racist too. And, and why isn't it being talked about that the NFL has two other minority coaches Besides Mike Tomlin, the, the black head coach of the Steelers. I mean, you hear about that one coach, one coach, one coach in the NFL is black. But there are actually two other non-black minority coaches in the NFL, head coaches. Ron Rivera of the Washington Commies. He's of Puerto Rican and Mexican descent. And the Jets coach is of Lebanese descent. And he's a Muslim. I guess those minorities, Hispanics and Muslims, aren't victims of racism, just blacks are. The NFL is like 75% black in terms of the players. They make billions of dollars a year in total salary. That's some plantation, I guess, right? Now, some other thoughts on the racism claims that he made. These teams are worth billions of dollars. They're owned by massively successful and competitive men. Do you think they don't want to win? Do you think they wouldn't hire a guy wearing a dress? If he was capable of giving them a Super Bowl win, there's nothing about face of the franchise has to be white. 
All they care about, these owners, is to be up on that podium getting the Lombardi Trophy from the commissioner. These are massively competitive people who've already beaten every odd every odds to become hugely successful in different lines of work than sports team ownership. You think they don't want to win in sports too? This is why sometimes they cheat uh, either with deflated balls or videotaping their opponents' practices. They'll hire anyone for the job if it helps them win. And it's their teams. They paid for it. I know this is horrible, for Brian Flores to understand, but the NFL isn't a public corporation. These teams are privately owned property. Why can't they hire who they want? Why should they even be forced to interview people who they may not want to interview? If you tell someone they have to do something, usually they end up not wanting to do it even more. And what I think bothered me the most out of all of this is that Flores publicly divulged his private conversations on text with Bill Belichick. He completely betrayed Belichick. This is a guy who had once given him an assistant coach's job. And that's a big deal. You get a coach with the Patriots, an assistant job, that's a big deal. And Flores completely betrayed Belichick, just stabbed them in the back. And then he goes ahead and sues the NFL and sues three teams, the Giants, the Dolphins, uh, and the Broncos. Now tell me, if you're an owner, who in the hell would hire this guy. You're going to trust this guy with your $2 billion asset? I mean, he's collecting evidence against you to use in a lawsuit once he goes 6-11 and 11 and gets fired. You want to hire a guy like that? You got to be out of your fucking mind to hire a guy like that. Would you hire him for your business? Forget your, your billion-dollar asset. Just for your landscaping business, would you hire someone that sued all of his prior bosses? Of course you wouldn't. So I don't know why he did this. I guess he wanted to become, maybe it's better pay, like Colin Kaepernick learned. You make more money becoming a cultural icon in America for minorities, I suppose. Certainly Colin Kaepernick wasn't a good enough quarterback to start again. So instead of playing football, he became an icon and gets paid by Nike. And he is the epitome of anti-racism. Now, Back to some more discussions about racism, because you could just do this all day. Whoopi Goldberg. She tried to diminish the Holocaust this week by stating that it was just white-on-white violence, some whites being inhuman to other whites, and she said, it's about man's inhumanity to man. She referred to Jews and Nazis as, quote, two groups of white people, and said that because they were both white, it was about inhumanity and not race. This is what she said. This is my my favorite line. This is white people doing it to white people. So y'all going to have to fight amongst yourselves. (laughs) Meaning that it's, it's, it's not a black person problem. So because it's not happening to blacks, I don't care. I guess she forgot who the fuck marched with the blacks and who died with the blacks during the civil rights era. It was Jews, you fucking idiot. Anyway, she just feels it was just whites fighting with other whites about some white people things. She realizes that she's wrong, but she goes on to the Colbert show and where she's supposed to be apologizing, she just doubles down. In her experience as a black person, she said, race is something I can see. And of course, because she's the gatekeeper of all things racism, she gets to decide what race is. And she said that it wasn't a race thing at all because those Nazis and those Jews were all white. Quote, 
if the KKK is coming down the street with a Jewish friend, I'm going to run. First of all, she weighs like 900 fucking pounds. She ain't running at all. But if my friend decides not to run, they'll get passed by most times because you can't tell who's Jewish. It's not something that people say, oh, that person is Jewish. Now, this is really ignorant because anyone with a brain in their head knows that Hitler considered Jews to be an inferior race and Aryans to be a superior race. That's why Hitler killed six million Jews. They were an inferior and dangerous race. The Nazis described Jews as vermin. Hitler, like many anti-Semites before him, specifically and repeatedly in writings and in laws that he made and in speeches that he gave, labeled Jews as a physically impure Slavic descended race, in contrast to what he termed the blonde, blue-eyed, genetically pure German Aryan race. Nazi propaganda promoted these like scientific, fake scientific ways to supposedly identify Jews by the size of their nose and their lips or the shape of their heads. Sound familiar, black people, when you have to deal with racism on pseudo-scientific things like that? Hitler was obsessed by what he considered to be a biological fact of Jewish identity, and he wrote in that the final solution was inspired in part by his drive to create a more pure and singular human race and to rid the human race of Jews and other impurities. Jews were persecuted as a race by their neighbors in Europe and elsewhere for centuries before Hitler outlined many of his ideas in Mein Kampf. He wrote that in a, in a jail cell uh, in 1925. As far back as September 1919, Hitler issued a statement in which he defined Jews as a race, specifically a race tuberculosis of the peoples. A race. In addition, Jews were considered a separate race into the 1940s. Immigration authorities in America recorded them as a distinct racial group. So the question is, is she just an idiot and not a Jew hater? I actually think she's both. I really do. And she thinks that, like, as again, as I said, that our American society thinks that people of color are the gatekeepers of the definition of racism. They're in this exalted position where they get to decide. And arguing that the, the Holocaust wasn't about race is no different than claiming that the history of slavery in America, well, it wasn't about race either. Now, what would happen to someone if one of the, the, those cows, one of the white cows on The View, what if they had said that, that slavery wasn't about race? It was just about man being inhuman to man. You think that white cow host wouldn't get fired in two minutes? And in fairness, Whoopi's idiocy isn't limited to just hating Jews. She once said that director Roman Polanski's rape of a 13-year-old child wasn't rape-rape. That's in quotes. So it's like rape, but not like real rape. Because she gets to decide what real rape is. Having sex with a 13-year-old who can't consent, that's not rape-rape. You get to keep your job if you're a liberal by saying something as idiotic as that. And you keep someone who says something as idiotic about a 13-year-old having sex not being rape-rape. And what ends up happening? They say that Nazis killing Jews was just white-on-white -white crime. 
Now, Joe Rogan, the uh, wildly popular Spotify podcast host, was the subject of protest by musicians, and now they're all coming after him because he dared to host anti-vax opinions on his show. The guy shows like all angles of every issue. He just talks about all of it, and he feels, shockingly, that perhaps the vaccines are no good for young people. It's been less than a year ago where we were told by the CDC, if you take the vaccine, you have a 95% chance of not getting COVID. So they can lie to you, and Joe Rogan picks up on that, and now he's being canceled? Somehow, uh, uh, AOC, uh, Alexandra Jimenez Cortez... Ocasio, whatever the fuck her name is, she supports Whoopi Goldberg and just says, let's just stop talking about it because, you know, it's Jews. Of course, you know, the liberals support Louis Farrakhan, but not Joe Rogan. They don't want Hamas canceled. Joe Rogan, though, needs to get canceled. Why? Because he's very popular and he's got a tremendous platform. And coming into elections, the liberals do not want Joe Rogan having that platform because he can influence voters. He can influence his zillions of listeners. That's why they're coming after him. That's why they don't have to come after Farrakhan because he's already got the lefties. He's not going to convince any moderate to vote Democratic because he hates Jews and the lefties hate Jews. They've got all their votes through Farrakhan. No need to cancel him. Now, in 1993, Whoopi wrote a recipe for a cookbook. Uh, for the, uh, It was called Jewish American Princess Fried Chicken for this cookbook. That makes sense. You know, she's making uh, comments about Jews. Uh, Joe Lieberman's a Jew. He wrote a, a recipe for that cookbook. His was for noodle pudding. Diane von Furstenberg, the fashion designer, she submitted sour cream stuffed chicken with new potatoes. Whoopi's recipe read, Quote, send chauffeur to your favorite butcher shop for the chicken. Save the brown paper bag, you know, because chews are cheap. Have your cook, one, melt equal parts oil and butter, three quarters inch deep in skillet over moderate heat. Put flour seasoned with remaining ingredients into brown paper bag. Rinse chicken parts and place in bag. Then you tightly close top of bag, watch your nails, <laughs> and shake ten times. Hand bag to your cook. Go dress for dinner. While you dress, have your cook preheat oven to 350 degrees and brown chicken slowly in skillet. When evenly browned, have the cook, she's referring to black people, place chicken in dish in oven. Have cook prepare rest of meal while you touch up your makeup. In about half an hour, voila, dinner is served. You must be exhausted. You know, because chappy women are lazy. Now, granted, all of that's true. I mean, let's be honest. I get that she tried to be funny. Jappy women uh, are funny to laugh at and deserve abuse. Just like the black stereotype, too. I mean, we could make fun of blacks, too, right? You know, what, what are the stereotypes about them? And, and But Jappy women are nauseating to me, so I'm going to let this pass. didn't bother me, but it was anti-Semitic. I mean, I suppose it was if we're going to look back with today's lens. And I, and I looked back to see if it was acceptable back then. Uh, I, I thought, you know, it probably was because Jews are easy to abuse because no one really supports them. Just like now, nothing's changed. And she did catch some flack for it back then. And her response was that she was a practicing Jew. And for that reason, she can't be anti-Semitic. Of course, she was never a Jew. She's just a fucking liar. 
She said in the past that she chose the Jewish name Goldberg to be her stage name because uh, she has Jewish ancestors. Who are her Jewish ancestors? Like Adam and Eve? I mean, what a ridiculously ridiculous lie that was. Her, her real name was Karen Johnson, and she chose the name Goldberg because her mother told her that she'd get more auditions in Hollywood if people somehow thought she was, was Jewish. And, and you can see it now. Her mom's was like this old school uh, black Jew hater who thought that Jews rule the world. Now, obviously, this is like the dreaded cultural appropriation, which gets most people canceled. But it's also anti-Semitic because she chose the name totally based on slander that Jews control the world. She pretended to be Jewish in order to get ahead, and she's had this name for decades. You'd think that at some point she developed some affinity for Jews, considering that she had to live with that Jewish name, and she stole it, and it helped her become successful in her mind. Nevertheless, she hates Jews like many black Americans of her age group. And again, as I said this before, it's totally bizarre to me because who do you think marched side by side with blacks during the civil rights era in the 60s? Who got murdered along with blacks during the civil rights era? It was Jews, not Palestinians who they love so much now. The only reason they love them is because they hate Jews so much. They'd support anybody that's fighting Jews. Regardless, who's taking a recipe from, from Whoopi Goldberg? She weighs seriously like, I mean, I'm being honest, I don't mean to to fat shame her, but she weighs like 400 pounds and she wears one of those, those goddamn, those, those mumu dresses or like a, like a sack to hide how huge she is. You can't even see that she has any shape. She looks like the fucking grimace. She didn't get that way by eating right. And she probably has like a touch of the diabetes, you know, probably lost a couple of toes here and there, you know, I have to see how she's walking, but there's no way that that woman doesn't have the diabetes. In case you had any doubt that Whoopi was a Jew hater, by the way, she defended Mel Gibson after his really anti-Semitic comments about Jews that were captured on tapes. And she said, I don't like what he did here, but I know Mel and I know he's not a racist. He may be a bonehead. I, I can't sit and say that he's a racist having spent time with him in my house with my kids. Okay, dummy. Okay. Just because he didn't, what, take your kids and, and throw them in the oven, didn't throw them into the fireplace, that means he's not racist? Come on. If a white guy makes fun of blacks, their life is over. Jews are allowed to be abused because Jews are successful. So I think the world just figures that Jews need to take it. Jews can't experience racism. Jews are the white guys. The, they're the problem. That's what people like Whoopi Goldberg really mean. Look what those Jews, those Jews are doing to those poor Palestinians. Jews are the white oppressors and the, the Israel-Palestine conflict is between white settlers who stole the land of the poor, oppressed black and brown people and leftist thinking like this is what caused the spike in anti-Semitism attacks all over America last May when Palestinian terrorists launched thousands of rockets at Israel, at civilians, and Israel had the temerity to respond. The thinking was that whites in Israel were supposedly abusing blacks and browns and you have to attack them all over the world. And in the world of the racist, Israelis are Jews. And that's what Whoopi Goldberg does. She equates Jews, in her mind, uh, to Israel. The poor brown Palestinians getting abused by the bad white people. You know, the, the poor Palestinians led by a crazed genocidal Muslim terror group, which celebrated on 9-11 
supported the Taliban when they took Afghanistan back from America. Oh, and by the way, they're backed by Iran and paid for by Iran. The left wants to diminish the Holocaust, which was not white people being inhumane to white people. It wasn't man's inhumanity to man. It was about man's genocide of Jews. Full stop. Diminish the Holocaust and Israel's existence is just an, a, an inconvenient way to say that you know Jews need to be protected. That's really what it is. That's why the Holocaust needs to be diminished, because if it's diminished, then Israel doesn't need to exist anymore. Now, let's go on to the Beijing Olympics. I don't know if anybody's actually watching this. I haven't watched a single bit of it. The West is engaged in a diplomatic boycott. That means that no diplomats are permitted to attend due to the massive human rights violations by the Chinese, mostly due to the Uyghur Muslim minority in the country. A million or so of them are locked away in prison camps right now, held against their will. The Chinese claim that these Muslims are being re-educated and being taught skills at these camps. You know, that's what you do when you want to teach somebody skills. You lock them into a concentration camp. But there are also forced abortions of the Uyghur women, forced sterilization of them so they can't have any more children. And while the Uyghur men are in the prison camps, their wives are often forced to marry Chinese men and have children with them. China is also destroying Muslim mosques. And why are they doing this? You know what China doesn't have? It doesn't have a Muslim terror problem, and it doesn't want one. So they're getting ahead of what they consider to be the problem by forcing the Uyghurs to assimilate. They want to nip any religious extremism they can in the bud. The Uyghurs represent 1.5% of all of China's population, but their arrest percentage makes up 21% of all Chinese arrests. Now, this isn't a secret what's going on there, and there's been massive amounts of corroboration of it, but very little world outcry. Isn't that funny? A million Muslims locked away, women being sterilized. It's for a couple of reasons. One is because money, and China makes a lot of people money, so we can't dare speak out against them. And in the case of Muslim nations, they stay silent on this issue because they simply don't care unless an issue can help them. Unless they can use racism, Islamophobia, Muslims being abused as a weapon. Or, frankly, because there's no Jews involved. If an Israeli uh, kills a Palestinian who just stuck a knife into a child, the entire Muslim world freaks out. A million Muslims are put in prison and brainwashed, their wives sterilized. Utter fucking silence. Nothing. Nothing. Where's the Palestinians? Every day they're crying about Israel killing an armed terrorist. A million Muslims are being abused in China. They don't say a peep. In Syria, thousands and thousands of Palestinians were killed by the butcher Assad. Not a peep from the Palestinians. Not a peep from the Democratic politicians. The squad, AOC. When Israel defends itself against Palestinian terrorism, they lose their fucking minds. Communist China sterilizes Muslims, not a peep, not a peep. Naturally, America is better than all that, so we really struck back at the Chinese. We wouldn't let our diplomats go to the Olympics. I mean, forget that China nearly destroyed our country by unleashing their filthy COVID virus on the world. Forget they routinely send spies to America. We don't do anything about that. But a million Muslims in concentration camps is where we really draw the line. There will be no champagne and caviar for American diplomats in the luxury boxes 
at the Olympic events in Beijing. No, 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 no. And as I said, liberals are really loath to cri- criticize China. Savannah Guthrie uh, the, from NBC, uh, she was giving the commentary at the opening ceremonies, and she noted that the communist Chinese regime chose a Uyghur athlete to light the Olympic flame at the opening ceremony, and it was a, obviously a blatant propaganda attempt to defect claims that it's committing genocide of the Muslim minority there. Guthrie described the choice as provocative and a, quote, in-your-face response to Western nations, including the U.S., who have called Chinese treatment of the Uyghurs genocide and diplomatically boycotted the games. She was basically cheering on the Chinese and chiding the United States for daring to make the tiniest of peeps about a genocide that's going on right now. This is how sick the left in America is, how it's permeated all of our media. LeBron James screams and yells about a criminal getting killed by the police, but he won't speak up about the Chinese, the sweatshops that are used with children working to make his fucking sneakers because money. That's it. That's it. Where's the outcry? You know, we hear pink washing and this washing and that washing. Where's the washing, the accusations of washing away the sins of, of China? of the genocide they're committing by letting one of the Muslims light the torch? Come on. Nancy Pelosi, the Democrat Speaker of the House, she stated that American Olympic athletes should not criticize China while they're over there because it wasn't worth the reprisal from what she considered to be a very ruthless Chinese government. So we sent our athletes over there to a country that is currently committing genocide. They poisoned our country with their virus. But we should be polite while we're over there? Why are we sending them there if they're so bad? And if they're that bad, shouldn't representatives of America speak up? We've come a long way from uh, uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith raising black power salutes during the 68 Olympics in Mexico City. Where's the outcry now from the left? Where? They only speak up when it comes to Israel, when it comes to domestic terrorists, you know, white terrorists, like the people who walked into the Capitol on January 6th. Now, look, there were some criminals there that day. There were some vials. There was a few guns. But if you were caught walking into the Capitol uh, on January 6th and you got arrested, you ended up spending a few months in jail. You might not even get bail. You know who did get bail, by the way? You know who didn't get any jail time? Well, I'll tell you. A 20-year-old Somalian man was convicted of attempting to set fire to a high school during the Black Lives Matter riots in Minneapolis following the death of George Floyd. He was sentenced to five years probation in a federal courtroom. Mohammed Hussein Abdi was given a probationary sentence on Thursday after pleading guilty to conspiracy to commit arson. He was arrested in June of 2020 a month after he entered the high school through a broken glass door during the George Floyd riots, as I said, and could be seen on security footage pouring liquid from a white container onto the floor and then into a trash can. He then took a liquid-soaked garment and and, uh, sent the fire to the trash can before running away as the flames and the smoke began to spread. So you've got this immigrant from Somalia who we just brought into the country as a gift to him. Naturally, during... I'm going to whisper like Joe Biden... Naturally, during the Obama administration, he repaid us 
As soon as he gets to America, what does he want to do? He wants to destroy the place. He repaid us by lighting a school which has students from low-income minority families on fire. And how did he get that probationary sentence? Don't you want to know? The same Department of Justice that is insisting upon jail time for all, just about all of the January 6th defendants, the same Department of Justice that was demanding no bail for the January 6th defendants. Well, they ask for leniency for Muhammad Hussein Abdi. Why should this terrorist get any kind of leniency from our government? Well, he was a refugee and an immigrant. That's what the government wrote in their sentencing memo to the court. I read it. It's funny how lighting a school on fire is worse than walking into the Capitol, breaching the Capitol, following uh, hundreds of other sheep. There's an immigrant who's been in the country just a few years, and he gets a massive break from our our government for committing terrorism. But American citizens? Nope. Nothing from this government. And this is why I was forced to break from the Democratic Party. They left me. I didn't leave them. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. We're going to take a quick break and back with the legal portion of the show. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about how you can win a case as a defense lawyer, even while losing it. And, and this is the perfect case that I'm going to describe that really explains that. And defense lawyers know what I'm talking about. This is a case from a few years ago that involved a client who was slightly older than the age of 18 when he was arrested, and he was charged federally with kidnapping a woman. This was his former girlfriend who was slightly younger than 18 at the time. They were both high school students, and the boy got very jealous. The, uh, the girl had dumped him and started dating a new guy. And my client just flipped out one day and asked her to come to sit with him in his car and talk. And while talking to her, he just suddenly drove away. And he drove, and he drove, and he went from New York all the way to Maryland, refusing to let her go threatening her the entire way if she if she tried to run away and she was basically terrorized for 11 hours and taken out of state against her will it was really a silly stupid criminal error of judgment for an 18 year old boy now in the charging instrument the indictment the government claimed that he took her phone from her that he wouldn't let her contact anyone that he had raped her in the past you know bad 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 stuff this was not a great case to start And it was worse due to the age of our client and his ex-girlfriend because the federal kidnapping statute states that if the defendant is older than 18 when he commits a kidnapping and the victim is younger than 18, it's a 20-year mandatory minimum sentence. Even though he was just a few months older than 18 and she was just a few months younger. Talk about bad luck. And the evidence was really bad. Our client's iPad was seized and it included searches, how to kidnap someone, how to force your girlfriend to marry you, and also the penalties for kidnapping. So it showed that he had the intent to kidnap. And that was the day before he kidnapped her at the school. Those searches were made. And it gets worse. Our client made a statement during text during the kidnapping, threatening to kill her new boyfriend if he tried to find his ex, you know, the client's ex-girlfriend. 
And while I'd gotten him out on bail, it gets worse. While I'd gotten him out on bail after he was arrested, he soon thereafter violated his bail conditions and returned to prison after he repeatedly contacted his ex-girlfriend by phone upon his release. And that was obviously one of the conditions of release was that he couldn't have any contact at all with the victim. So things were looking about as bleak as can be. Oh, and then something else happened. The judge in the case was Judge Denise Coat, probably the toughest judge in the Southern District of New York. This is a really brilliant woman, brilliant judge, forget woman, brilliant judge, really likable. Just, I, I happen to really like her a lot until she starts just crushing your soul in court. And the circumstances obviously were just awful. We had no defense, a 20-year mandatory minimum, and a slam dunk conviction. Oh, and we had a brutal judge. But sometimes these are really the best cases that you get because there's only one way to go in a case like this. It can only go one way. It can only get better. There's no hope. It can only get better. Can't get any worse. And the way I handle cases like this is sort of like, uh, I'm going to use um, an analogy, like in a baseball game, you're down by seven runs and you, you can't go up to the plate and hit a seven run home or you just can't do it. Those are the rules. You have to just simply peck away, peck away, peck away. It's like chopping a tree down. You can't chop it down with one stroke of the ax. You got to go slowly and surely. Eventually the tree falls down. So I tried to attack it that way. I didn't want to get overwhelmed mentally about what we were facing. And we did a little bit at a time, baby steps. The first thing we did is I had a psychologist meet with the client and make a report. And he had concluded after multiple visits that the defendant had severe mental issues brought on by the rejection from his very first girlfriend in his life. The boy had really bad coping skills and he just snapped. He had no prior criminal history. He came from a good family. This was aberrational conduct. And I didn't get, just get any psychologist that you can hire for defense cases. I picked one who worked almost exclusively with the federal government on cases. Now, the truth is, if I didn't get a good report from this psychologist, into the garbage can it would have gone. I ended up getting a good report from uh, this doctor. We then researched all of the federal kidnapping cases in the country in which the 20-year minimum was applied in federal prosecutions due to the victim being under 18 and the defendant being over 18. In every single case which was reported in which the 20-year mandatory minimum was applied, there was a huge difference in age between the parties. A 45-year-old defendant and a 14-year-old girl, a 30-year-old defendant and a 12-year-old girl, nothing like this case where it's boyfriend and girlfriend just a few months apart in age instead of like an older predator man and a child. So the first thing we did then after that was we put together a letter to the prosecutor. I mean, this was like a pitch, which doesn't usually get done in federal criminal cases. And we listed all of these cases in which the 20-year mandatory minimum was applied and showed how ridiculous it was when applied to our client and the victim in this case. But we didn't stop just there. We also did research on other federal sex crime statutes in which a minor was involved, and we learned that some had a listed age the victim had to be, had to reach a point of at least, and in order for the defendant to be guilty of the crime, the statutes also made an allowance for defendants who were close in age to the victim. I'll give you an example. Aggravated sexual abuse, a federal statute. Whoever knowingly engages in a sex act with another person who has attained the age of 12 
but not attain the age of 16 and is at least four years younger than the person so engaging, see, not a few months, four years younger, shall be imprisoned for not less than 30 years or for life. And we didn't stop just with federal statutes. We looked at some state law too. We learned that states often utilize age ranges for offenses involving minors in lieu of exact thresholds like the kidnapping statute did. In New York, a person is guilty of rape in the third degree when, being 21 years old or more, he or she engages in sexual intercourse with another person less than 17 years old. In Connecticut, a person is guilty of sexual assault in the second degree when such person engages in sexual intercourse with another person who is 13 years of age or older, but under 16 years of age, and the actor, meaning the defendant, is more than three years older than such other person. This was included, we included all of this in the letter to the prosecutor, again, to show how unfair it was that a kid who was barely older than 18, with a victim just barely under 18, is treated the same way as a 60-year-old guy who kidnapped a 12-year-old. Now, we would need the prosecutor to agree with us because if he didn't, we had no leverage at the time. It's, it's mandatory minimum. You can't argue to a judge not to apply the mandatory minimum. It's up to the people charging the case. The government can't drop the 20 years, just the government. Now, our letter also focused on the claim that the victim was terrorized completely. That was what was in the indictment. We listened to the 911 call that the girl had made at the end of the kidnapping, which led, led to her being rescued. And in it, you could actually hear her whispering to the defendant, Chris, you need to go. You need to go. At the same time, she's asking for the police to come pick her up. The 911 operator actually heard it and, and said, who are you speaking to? And the victim in this case said, no one, no one. And after it was over, the police asked her if she warned the kidnapper, our client, to leave the area when she called 911 and she denied it. She lied. So you could see that she had some empathy for our client and also her text messages showed that she had texted some of her friends during the day and they weren't getting, there weren't texts like help, I'm being kidnapped, help, help, help. So it was clear that it wasn't completely the terrorizing kidnapping that you'd expect with the statute. The government, not too surprisingly, because sometimes they can be fair, agreed to drop the 20 year mandatory minimum. So we were getting some progress there. But what was our client facing now without the 20-year minimum? Well, uh, the guidelines range, the sentencing guidelines range, which again is just advisory, not mandatory, was 87 to 108 months for a conviction for kidnapping. That's still a lot of time. That's still seven and change years to nine. Now, a judge doesn't have to give a guideline sentence, but you know we had Judge Coat, very, very tough sentencer. And it's still a huge amount of time for a, a very young client who has no criminal record. And you never know with this judge coat, she could hit him with seven, eight, and nine years. We didn't want to really take our chances with him, with her, excuse me. So we had to take her out of the picture. And how do we do that? We had to ensure that she wouldn't be able to hammer our client, even if she wanted to. Well, we then sent the psychology report to the prosecutor. And it showed how this was just a crime of passion done by a dumb kid, even though he had threatened violence the entire day. But the psychologist who wrote the report made it clear that the kid was just a kid who was just immature and had bad coping skills and that he was unlikely to ever commit a crime again. 
we really humanized the defendant. We made great efforts to show that he was a human being. And the prosecutor read the report and noted that it was from one of their experts who they frequently use. And we got really lucky. We had a fair prosecutor. Sometimes you need a fair prosecutor. Sometimes you got to get lucky. And sometimes that's your best strategy is luck. And he said to us, okay, I'm willing to play. Give me an idea how to limit Judge Coates' ability to crush our client. So we came up with an idea. Instead of making the defendant plead to kidnapping, which you know still had sky's the limit as a statutory maximum sentence, we asked to have him plead to a federal stalking charge. Now, there was a factual basis for such a guilty plea because uh, the defendant had stalked the victim as well. I mean, that's what he did when he went to go pick her up. The sentencing guidelines for the crime of traveling and in interstate commerce with the intent to harass and intimidate another person, which is interstate stalking, was still 87 to 108 months. Those were the sentencing guidelines. However, the stalking charge occurred uh, uh, during another crime. That's how it got to 87 to 108. You have to look at the crime that was occurring when the stalking happened. That was the kidnapping charge. So the guidelines were the same, but the one positive thing is that the stalking charge came with a statutory maximum of only five years, of 60 months. So while the sentencing guidelines, the advisory sentencing guidelines for the judge was 87 to 108 months, the judge couldn't go higher than 60 months. And at this point, we had really gone as far as we could with the prosecutor. He wasn't willing to do any more. And we figured, you know, the guidelines were 87 to 108 months. The statutory max the judge could give the defendant was 60. So we figured Judge Cote, in fairness, would say, look, you've already gotten a huge break from coming down from the 20-year mandatory minimum, which you should have had. You got a huge break from not getting even a guideline sentence because I can only go as high as 60. We assumed that she would give him 60 months. But you don't assume as a defense lawyer because you never know. I mean, you're in a job where everything you do is a long shot. So if that's the case where you're not going to work, if you have a long shot, you'll never get out of bed in the morning. We didn't stop fighting for this kid. We put together just a, a massive sentencing submission because 60 months is a damn long time to spend in prison. Now, you'd only have to do 85% of it in the, in the federal system. It was more like 51 months is what it would be. But still, I don't want to spend 60 minutes in prison. Forget 60 months. So this massive sentencing submission that we put in included all of the things that we provided to the prosecutor, including the psychological report, but many letters from friends and family of the defendant. And we painted the kid as a hard worker, never in trouble, but emotionally very immature. And Judge Cote, I find most defense lawyers are terrified of her and they just go in there expecting to lose. And I, I, I feel completely different with her. <clears throat> She's very, very tough. She respects you if you're smart, if you're well-prepared. She's also fair. And a lot of times you walk out of there, you know, with your ass, your cheeks are red because you've been beaten around so much. But if you take the time to reflect, you realize oftentimes from Judge Cote, you get what you deserve. And she listens. She's very, very wise. She listens. And she said, of course, which didn't help during the sentencing, that she was going to take into account that not only did our client jump, uh, screw, excuse me, violate his bail conditions and ignoring her order not to contact the victim. But she said, I'm also going to take into account that there's allegations that he sexually assaulted her throughout the relationship. 
And check this out. She nevertheless gave him a 36-month sentence, which is 24 months below the statutory maximum, which means he'd have to serve about 30 months in prison. And when you consider how this case started, 20-year mandatory minimum, getting out of this with just having to serve two and a half years was a pretty remarkable result, all things considered, that every possible factor was against us. And what this showed me, this case, and it showed me time and time again during my career, is that even the toughest audience can be won over if you put in the time, if you put in the energy to win and you just don't give up. Most lawyers, and if anybody's had any contacts with the criminal justice system, system, know that they'll do the bare minimum. And I don't care what anybody says. This is true. They will do the bare minimum. I've seen it. To be a good defense lawyer, you have to recognize that every case is a puzzle. You just need to figure your way out of the maze. You need to figure out how to solve the puzzle, and then the client can win, even if he's just been convicted. Thank you for listening to another episode of Beyond the Legal Limit. You can find me on Spotify. You can find me on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on CastBox. Please give me any feedback you want by email. Um, You can uh, send it to to jl at jeffreylickman.com. You can give me some reviews. You can, you know, all good ones, of course. And, of course, no death threats this week. Thanks very much. See you next week.